If there's one word you hear a lot in the Protestant church, it's the word faith, because faith is foundational to a biblical understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And here's why. In the, in the book of Romans, as we've been working our way through here, we've seen and proclaimed that salvation, being right with God, the creator and judge of all things, depends on righteousness, because righteousness is the very nature of God. And to be acceptable to him, we must be righteous. But as you've been following along, there's this problem. And the problem is, in the first three chapters, Romans explains in great detail that nobody is righteous, no human being is righteous. We don't have what we need to be acceptable to God. In Paul's own words in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. Remember that? So we don't have what we need to be acceptable to God, but rather deserve exclusion from his presence because we are not righteous. But Paul explains that there is another righteousness. There is a righteousness that is outside of us, that's not from us, it's the very righteousness of God himself. It's his righteousness. And there's a way for us to actually obtain divine righteousness, not that we become divine, but that that righteousness is actually like credited to us. Like if you have an account and you're supposed to have so much righteousness in there and you are defaulting on your account, God fills it up with his own righteousness. He puts righteousness in your account. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of times. We've been in Romans here. Our need for righteousness, Paul explains, is the whole reason that Jesus Christ came into the world. God became a man to demonstrate his perfect righteousness and then to offer himself as a substitute to divine justice so we can be free from the penalty of sin. That's pretty standard stuff if you've been around Christian circles. But don't lose sight of how important it is. What do you need for salvation? Righteousness. Never forget that. All salvation is based on what theologians call the principles of righteousness. You have to have righteousness to be right with God. The good news is there's a righteousness outside of us. Chapter 3, verse 21, we saw a few... Uh, well, about a month ago, I guess. It says, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Notice, apart from law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a sacrifice that turns away wrath, a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, long story short, salvation then, purchased by the blood of Christ, is a gift of divine grace. It's God's gift. And that gift is given to, verse 22, all who believe. And verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith. The reason faith is foundational 
to any biblical understanding of reality in a man's relationship with God is because faith is the necessary means of receiving God's righteousness. That's really the argument of Romans chapter 4. Not only is it important to have faith, but I would say if that's true, it's pretty important to know what faith really is, isn't it? Versus what people might think it is. There are many people who say, I believe, but don't have the faith that Scripture is talking about. When you come to chapter 4, as we looked at previously, we learn that righteousness has come by faith all along. This isn't a new doctrine. It has never been any different. A man receives righteousness from God by believing God through faith. Since the fall of man, ever since Adam and Eve plunged us into this darkness that we find ourselves in, we have needed another outside righteousness because we don't have our own. And Paul goes right to the source of Israel's pride, the great patriarch himself, Abraham, the father of them all, his own people, Abraham, to prove that this is so. Abraham, the chosen. Abraham, the friend of God. Abraham, the one called out. Abraham, the father of many nations. Abraham, the recipient of the divine covenant. Is, in fact, Abraham the believer. And it's because Abraham was a believer that God put righteousness in his bankrupt account. It is no accident that in Genesis, the book of beginnings, it should be so clearly said that Abraham received righteousness from God because of his faith, not because of anything that he did. So in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. What does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, put to his account, as righteousness. That is the theological foundation concept for the whole Bible. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Then he goes on to explain that Abraham received this outside righteousness from God many years before he had been given the sign of circumcision, which is what the Jews had been counting on. They always said, well, we're circumcised, so we're saved. We've done this ceremony, we're saved. We've done this, we're saved. We're part of this covenant thing, we're saved. Paul says, no, 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 no. 24 years before that ever even became anything, Abraham was saved, if you will. He received righteousness by faith. So circumcision had nothing to do with that. It was before all that. But as we come to our text for today, which is 17 through 25 of chapter 4, we begin to see what faith is by examining the faith of Abraham. I'm going to start reading at verse 16, but pay attention to what he, it is that Abraham had faith in. What's he putting his faith in? Okay, verse 16, chapter 4. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So here's the first principle of faith. Faith is in God. I said, well, of course faith's in God. No, not of course. A lot of people don't put faith in God. They put faith in religion. They put faith in their, their good deeds. They put faith in all kinds of things that they're counting on to get them some kind of merit points on the big day when they stand before St. Peter or somebody. That's the way the human mind works. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about faith 
in God. Abraham trusted the person of God. He didn't trust in a church. He didn't trust in a religion. He didn't trust spiritual feelings. He didn't trust anything but the person of God. God spoke to him and he put his trust in God. That's what Paul is saying. God is the object of faith, saving faith, the God who is actually there. And the God Abraham believed in, Paul says, gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. That's the kind of God we're talking about, a God of infinite power. And in Abraham's case, that entailed believing the specific promise that God made to him. He says here in verse uh, the beginning of verse 17, as it is written, the father of many nations have I made you. God spoke those words to Abraham and Abraham taking those words believed God, trusted God, that God would fulfill promises he spoke to him. You see that? That's real important. He wasn't believing in some obscure mystical concept, but in the God who revealed himself to Abraham in promises. And as we shall see, the God we are called upon to believe in today is the exact same God. Only we have so much more revealed and have the benefit of so much more to rely on. But Abraham truly believed and his faith was counted by God as righteousness. Why do you suppose faith would be the thing that God would want to see? Why that? What's Faith isn't like some great work. It isn't like feeding the poor or, you know, fighting pollution. That's the only moral there is today, fighting pollution. Some, some kind of thing like that. Uh, why is it some great, great act? Why should that be the receiving mechanism for God's righteousness? Why not something more noble, something more active? Why should faith save us? Well, think about it. We cannot please God or honor God with our righteousness because that's so deficient. That's our problem in the first place. So for us to say, well, I will do great deeds and earn God's favor, all God does is say, hey, you're doing great deeds and you're patting yourself on the back and you got the wrong motives and you blew it over here and you messed up over there. It doesn't work because we're not good enough. There's no saving merit in our goodness because in ourselves we have such meager goodness. Nothing worthy of a claim on God's approval. You might compare yourself to your neighbor that got arrested last week and say, I'm better than that. But when you look at God's standard, if you look seriously at God's standard in the Bible for what he expects people to live like, you're not even close. And it's, you know, it's curious when Jesus told a little story about the, the servant that came in from working in the field all day, and then he had to come in, and before he got to eat, he was dead tired, he has to fix his master's meal, sit down and feed the master, and then he gets to go and take a break, and the master doesn't even say thank you. And Jesus said, that's just the way it's supposed to be. You do everything that's expected of you, you don't get a thank you for that because that's all you're supposed to do. That's your job. That's what righteousness is like for you. You can do everything God ever said to do and you don't get a big credit for that. That's just what you're supposed to do. That's how far short we are. So don't rely on that. You can't rely on that. It's impossible. That's why you need an outside source of righteousness. But faith, what is it about faith? Faith carries in it a, a simple but genuine way to honor God and that is simply by believing Him. Think about it. In believing Him, we agree with Him. We confirm with Him our own de desperate need of Him, our own dependence upon Him. We embrace 
by faith all that He is and has said and done and we say yes to it. And that honors Him. Way more than anything you could do because what you do is so stumbling and clumsy and falls so far short. Martin Luther, the great reformer who brought Paul's theology of justification by faith back to the light after being trampled in years of darkness, he wrote this. He said, when we are dealing with words and promises, there must be faith. Even between men on earth, no business or community could long exist if no one was willing to take another's word or signature on faith. Now, as we plainly see, God deals with us in no other way than by his holy word and the sacraments, which are like signs or seals of his word. The very first thing necessary, then, is faith in these words and signs. For when God speaks and gives signs, man must firmly and wholeheartedly believe that what he says and signifies is true, so that we do not consider him a liar or a trickster, but hold him to be faithful and true. This faith pleases God above all things and does him the highest honor because it believes him to be true and a righteous God. Therefore, he in turn counts this faith to us as righteousness, good and sufficient unto salvation. That's exactly what Paul is saying about the faith of Abraham. He glorified God by trusting in his word and his promises. Verse 19 of um, chapter 4. It says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. See, God is glorified by faith. There are other helpful principles of faith that Paul mentions here. In fact, if you look at verse 18, we kind of skipped over that. He says, uh, so the first principle is faith is in God not anything else, his person. The second principle you find in verse 18, he believed, he hoped against hope. In hope against hope, he believed. Some of your translations may say it differently, but the New American Standard really captures the Greek text very well. In hope against hope. In other words, there was no human hope for his situation that God could fulfill the promise made. Paul is saying that by any earthly measure, it was a done, over with, impossible thing to have happen. By all the natural experiences of mankind, a man that is 100 years old and his wife is 90 years old are not going to have a child. It just never happens. A child at Abraham's age was impossible. And when the promise was first made to Abraham, he was 75 years old and Sarah was 65 years old. She's already too old. She's been barren her whole life. She's been unable to conceive her whole life, and now she's past childbearing. But in Genesis 17, Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah's about 90, and they're still childless after having that promise. But even without hope, he hoped in faith. He believed. Why? Because when God spoke to him, he believed completely. He knew it was going to happen. He trusted God. He was God-confident. Notice in verse 18 of chapter 4 the emphasis on what God had spoken. In hope against hope he believed in order that he might become 
the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Remember God said, look at the stars of the heaven. If you can count all of them, I'll tell you, when we were up at Yosemite last week, there's a lot more stars out there than you think. Uh, certainly than you can see from Acton. But it was so incredible. And he said, look at all the stars. And, and of course, they didn't have L.A. city lights or anything back in those days. And he says, if you can count those, so shall your descendants be. Innumerable, beyond your ability to count. This childless man, 100 years old. So the emphasis is on the spoken promise. He was trusting words because he was trusting the one who spoke the words. And there wasn't really anything to back up the words. I mean, he had to trust God's person to keep his word. God didn't say, hey, you know, I'm going to do this for you just to let you know that things are happening my way. We're going to, we're going to be there soon. Don't worry about it, buddy. You know, he just he'd waited 24 years and it still didn't happen. He's 100 years old. Would you have given up by then? Maybe I was dreaming that whole God speaking to me thing. Maybe, he, maybe he's not as powerful as he thinks. Maybe he's picked somebody else. Maybe who? But he believed. He believed. And that brought glory to God. And hope against hope, he believed. And he believed in spite of how things looked, verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Talking about reproductively, of course and the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's another principle of faith. He believed regardless of the circumstances that he was in, right? Abraham's situation was not conducive to believing that God would ever keep his promise. It came to him in the first place really late in life. He was already an old man when this started. Now, I know if they made a movie about it, a cartoon, they'd have him be about 20 years old like Moses, but... These are, these are old guys when this stuff starts happening. Moses was old. Abraham was old. God doesn't think you're past your prime when you're reaching those ages. He's just getting ready to start working a lot of times. It came late in life. And then nothing happened after that late in life promise for almost 25 more years. That's a long time. Now, Satan can always point to things in your life and circumstances and things that happen, dark things, horrible things, bad things, and say, now look at this. And, and look at that. How can you believe? Nothing's going to change that. Can God fulfill a promise that He's made to you and that has happened and this has happened and that thing has overwhelmed you? Can He do that? He either isn't true or He doesn't care or He's moved on. He always entirely too mysterious to be bothered with. That's the satanic lie. So choose your own way and you'd better make your own decisions because he isn't going to help you. So figure it out for yourself. After all, look what he's let happen. If Satan can get our eyes on this world and what happens here and circumstances rather than eternal things, he has won an enormous victory. We live in a fallen and cursed world. Now, in that fallen and cursed world, God actually blesses his people in all kinds of ways. But not to the exclusion of pain and suffering and loss, because those things come to all men in this world. But this world isn't... It's, it's, a, it's a mere shadow of the world to come. It's, it's so temporary and so short-lived. 
You know, there's an old song we used to sing, that this world is not our home. And it's not. I'm just a passing through. That's how the song went. And that should be our attitude towards it. But we can get so caught up with the, what's going on down here that we miss it. And the answer to this satanic attack to focus on circumstances and what goes on down here and all this stuff is faith. Not blind faith. Not a philosophical hop over something, but trusting the person of God that what he promises is really true. Notice the use of the idea of death here. In verse 17, Paul explains that God can give life to the dead and call into being that which does not exist. Abraham believed God could do the impossible, even bring the dead to life. Then in verse 19, he looks at his own body and notice the word Paul uses, it's as good as dead. See? So he contemplated his situation, the physical impossibility of conception this late in life, his age, Sarah's age, her barren condition. In natural terms, there was no hope. He considered that. He's not pretending, oh, we'll just believe that we're 25, Sarah. You know, he's not pretending. He, he considers it. He looks at it. Yet, says verse 20, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. As the years passed, he was more confident. The very impossibility of it all did not diminish his trust. It simply grew. And you know where you see that just taken out even further? is when Isaac was finally born and then he was a young man and then God tells him to take Isaac out and sacrifice him on a rock. Remember that? So years later, when the child has actually come and the promise is actually fulfilled and the whole thing's getting cooking and getting started, God says, kill your son. And what does he do? Goes out, and takes a knife, ties him up, puts him on a rock. He's going to kill him. And you know what the Bible says about that? He believed that God would raise him back from the dead. He was so confident that he knew if he killed Isaac, he'd be back that day, two, two weeks later, three years later, 20 years later, he'd come walking back because he knew God made a promise and that promise was inviolable because he believed God. That's faith. So he didn't waver. To have God's promise fulfilled when he was still 100, 99 or whatever, struggling with all that, he knew it would take a miracle and he knew there would be one. He wasn't making up miracles. He was basing his miracles on specific promises that God had made to him. And he knew that those would come true. He wasn't deluded. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't claiming for himself some power to speak forth and God would have to do what he said. But he took God's word as valid because God spoke that word. And whatever God said, not what he said, but what God said would come to pass. This gives God glory. Then, verse 21, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. So Abraham believed God. He believed against hope, the hope of the world, which was hopeless. He believed in spite of his circumstances. He believed without wavering. He believed God could perform what he had promised. That is faith. And it is really nothing more than trusting a person. Trusting God. In this case, 
God as he had revealed himself to him, and that's the same for us. He had confidence that God would do just what he said he would do. Now, just as a note of warning, again, Abraham did not tell God what to do. He did not make up promises that were not there. You can't invent promises that God owes you because you get a feeling about, oh, I've, I've got a feeling God promises me a, 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 you know, you can't do that. You've got to go with what God said. That you can stand on. You can't make them up, though. Don't invent promises God never made. He trusted God as God revealed himself in his spoken word. That's what you should be counting on and relying on. And that, and just that, and nothing more than that, made Abraham right with God. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. Just that. Verse 22, Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness, Paul says. Well, what does all that have to do with me? How does that help me? I mean, Abraham lived like 4,000 years ago, you know. And here I am in the year 2001 in a scientific age, in a secular and largely godless culture. What does this mean for me? Everything. It means everything. In fact, godless cultures are the best place to have this going on. Faith. Because Abraham lived in a godless culture too. Well, actually it wasn't godless, it was godless, but it had all kinds of gods. Human cultures always change, always. But human beings never change. So that's why it's still relevant. Everything here is relevant. We have not grown in righteousness. We, don't, we can't look back 4,000 years ago and say, we're much more righteous now than they were back then. We can't do that. Our, our nature is still dominated by sin and rebellion against God and we still want to go our own way and we still want to make up our own rules. We still have this huge deficit in righteousness and God doesn't change either. He's still holy and pure and just and He's still righteous and He still requires righteousness and He's still merciful as well. And He still seeks to redeem wicked men. Verse 22 tells us of Abraham's faith, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But we have to keep reading now. Verse 23, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Did you catch that? What happened between God and Abraham was recorded, not for Abraham's sake, Actually, you know, it was written down by Moses like hundreds of years later. It was written down for us. That's what he's saying. This is a message for you. Why? Because God will put righteousness to your account if you believe him as regards the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham was as good as dead, Paul says. And God promised and brought forth life from him. Jesus was brutally put to death, but God raised him up again. And you see, the essential reality doesn't change. We receive righteousness by believing in a God who raises the dead, who can make something out of nothing, who can do anything He wants to do. And we are asked to believe in Him that God solved our sin problem in Christ. That's what we're asked to believe. That verse 25, He was delivered up because of our transgression it says, talking about Jesus, that Jesus went to his death a voluntary sacrifice in our place because of our sin. 
He satisfied for us the penalty of God's law. And then verse 25, it says, He was raised because of our justification. Justification is that act whereby God puts righteousness in your account and declares you righteous in His presence so you can be fully and completely acceptable to Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What a great verse. The resurrection of Jesus is the validation that His sacrifice was acceptable to God. You know, if Jesus just said, I'm going to die for your sins, and then He dies on a cross and you never hear from Him again, how would we know? You know? Well, that's a nice thought. What a nice guy. Nice dead guy. But He rose from the dead, which proved that God accepted the sacrifice because most people don't raise from the dead. It's very unusual. It's so unusual that it's an absolute validation of all His claims. We know because He conquered death, rose victorious, which is a guarantee, a promise of our future resurrection. And as we put our faith in Him, we are declared righteous by God's accounting, not ours. And that's the one that matters. Did you know that on Judgment Day, God is not going to ask you what you think of your righteousness? You know, he's like, what do you think? You think you, you, think you got enough there? That's not, the, that's not the measure. It's going to be His standard. But by His accounting, in Christ we are righteous. It's an amazing thing. And in Christ we have a new standing with God. So the promise we are asked to take as God's word for us, is as simple as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, what? That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As sure as God created life in the union of Abraham and Sarah, as sure as Isaac was born, and there are Jews alive today, descendant from Him, just as sure as that's true, just as surely does the death and resurrection of Jesus guarantee eternal life to anyone who puts their faith in Him. Now you can notice about Romans chapter 4 that it contains a lot of information, really important stuff, but not directly personalized stuff until you get to the last few verses. When you get to verse 24 and 25, there's suddenly this little burst of first-person pronouns. Our, 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 our. You don't see those words throughout Romans chapter 4, words like that. Me, mine, we, ours kind of stuff. But then suddenly in verse 24, it's for our sake. Jesus, our Lord. Verse 25, our transgressions are being dealt with. Our justification is being provided. It gets very personal. It's all about you and me and all this amazing activity on God's part is for us. And all He asks is that we trust Him with our hearts and with our minds, give Him His proper place and just acknowledge Him for who He is and what He's done and He will count that as righteousness. Isn't that awesome? That's what we call gospel. Good news. But before we go, just don't miss the essence of what faith is. It is more than mentally agreeing to a set of ideas or doctrines or propositions. Faith is faith in a person. It's trusting a person, God, to fulfill promises that He made 
with regard to Jesus Christ taking care of our sin, raising from the dead, justifying us, making us right with God in Him. You can't believe and then act as though God isn't who He is. That's not belief. There's all kinds of people who do that. Oh, I believe in that. I'm a Christian, yeah. But they, they live totally like God isn't even real. Like He's not the center of the universe. They are. That what He says doesn't go. That what Madonna does is more important than what God does. I mean, that's how people live. That's not faith. Faith puts him where he belongs, agrees with him about who he is, what he's done, where he fits in, where we fit in, and he fits in the center. It's a little too easy to do religion and not believe. Saving faith means a soul that has come alive to God, a new creation, Paul calls it, in another place. Well, Paul would begin to explain how faith changes us in chapters 5 through 8. Faith and justification is just the beginning. He has a lot more to say about how all this works together, and uh, we'll start looking at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning, and we thank you for not making it easy, because to really express our faith in you, we have to let go of a lot of things. But for making it so clear... And Lord, I just pray that you'd clear out of our hearts and our minds anything that would be a stumbling to this understanding of how you are glorified and honored by our faith and how that is the saving mechanism by your own choice and grace. And Lord, if we don't believe, help our unbelief. Humble us to the point of true faith and true repentance. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.